Church in Savannah, Georgia. To find out more about CBC, check out our website at cbcofsavannah.org. And now a message from the series Subjects from the Sermon on the Mount. Father, there is one name under, but under heaven by which we may be saved, and that is the name of your Son, Jesus. And we're here to proclaim his worthiness. We're here to proclaim his goodness. We're here to proclaim his gospel that he died for our sins and rose again. Um, And we're not worthy, but you are. And so I ask, as your people who are called by your name, that you would move in us right now as we open your word. Um, Lord, I am a broken man, and I am a broken husband, and I am a broken father. And so for me to proclaim this word, which is perfect and holy, is not an easy task. And so I ask again, like in the first service, that you would fill me with your spirit that you would take your word and honor your son through it, not me. Let me get off the stage and let Jesus be exalted and lifted high through these words and through our marriages, Lord Jesus. That's, that's, the, that's the cry of my heart. That's the cry of your heart. So I ask that you would do that despite me and despite my brokenness, Lord Jesus. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. And we do have, for those uh, who might need it, an overflow room. It's, we're working on it to make it better, but there is an overflow room at the very end of the hall. On the right, if you um, feel like you want to go out there and have a little bit more space, that is, that is there. You can come on back here for the singing part um, at the end, but just so you know. Um, and we do have an 845 service. That there is, just in case you didn't know, there is an 845 service, and there's a lot more space there. But we are glad you are here. It's awesome to sing in community with y'all. Worship, uh, just to be here today. And if you're new, welcome to a lighthearted service at CBC. For those who have been here, know what's coming. Um, last week, Jesus talked about adultery. This week, Jesus talks about divorce. You're thinking, who in the world does that back to back? Jesus does. Um, and so, because Jesus does, we will do it. Um, and so, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen, but there is a Bible in front of you. You're, please use it. You can take it home if you don't have one. Um, it's yours. It's our gift to you. But we will be looking what Jesus has to say. Um, and before some of you kind of like, oh, I didn't know it was going to be about that. I'm running out. Just so you understand, this is a safe place to talk about these things. Um, this is not going to be a bashing session. Let me just, just to show you how, how, how big of an issue this is in our culture. Let's just do a quick survey here. Don't answer, your, don't raise your hand yet, but at the end, after all three questions, if one of these three things applies to you, raise your hand. One, there's someone in your immediate family, you know, dad, mom, uncle, aunt, cousin, brother, sister, kids, grandkids. Someone in your immediate family has been divorced, okay? Or, no, wait, we'll, we'll go to the end, Okay. Uh, or you yourself are married to a divorced person, or number three, you yourself have been divorced. If one of those three applies to you, um, raise your hand. All right. So you got 75% of the room. Okay. So this is an issue that it's, it's prevalent in our culture. And if the statistics are, you know, everyone has their evangelical statistics. The real statistics are this. Four out of ten marriages end in divorce in our country. Six out of ten second marriages end, in, and seven out of ten third marriages and then divorce in our culture. So it's a big issue. And, and it's a ten, there's a tendency to think, well, you know, it's big now, but it wasn't big back then, right? But let me just tell you, 4,000 years ago, when Moses was alive, it was a big deal. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was walking on the earth, it was a big deal. Today, 2011, it's still a big deal. And so we're going to talk about it because Jesus does. And again, this is not going to be a bashing session. Those who have been divorced, those who are uh, from that past, maybe it happened before you were a Christian. This is not a, oh, we're going to talk about Every single person in this room is a sinner, and the cross of Jesus Christ is sufficient to forgive all sin. So we are, we're, we're all here, level here, but we are going to talk about it because Jesus talks about it. Um, and we have folks here that maybe the divorce was your fault. Maybe you got saved last year and you didn't know anything about this. Maybe your spouse is the one who left and you're sitting here in the aftermath. Maybe you're in a great marriage right now. Maybe your marriages are some trouble right now. Maybe you're engaged and you want to be. We have all different people in this room. And what we want to do, because this is what we do every week if you're visiting, is we're going to open the scriptures and we're going to see what Jesus says. And we are going to sit at his feet and just listen to the master. Let's listen to the king and see what he has to say. Okay? Because we don't want to be in here, out there. Okay? They can be cavalier towards marriage. Okay? In our culture, they can do that. But not in here. This is not a place where we're going to be cavalier with it because Jesus has a lot to say about it. And I really don't care where you were at 
10.59 or 10, what, what time does this service start? 11.15. So at 11.14, it doesn't matter where you were. Okay? Okay. Now, from now on, what we want to see in here is that our attitude is the attitude towards marriage that Jesus has. Because Jesus is going to answer a lot of questions. He's not going to answer every question. This is not a, a, what if she does this and he does that? And what about this situation? When Jesus is actually asked about divorce, he doesn't even answer the question. What does he do? He goes back to the intent of marriage. He says, let's talk about marriage. Let's not talk about divorce. Let's talk about marriage. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do what Jesus does. We're going to talk about marriage. This is not actually a sermon on divorce. It's actually on marriage. Okay, and so that's where we're going. Now, if you're visiting, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is discussing to his disciples. There's lots of people there, but he's talking to his disciples, to his followers, telling them what it looks like to follow him. What does it look like to live in the kingdom? As he is the king, we are his subjects. What does it look like to follow him? And he's dealt with all different things, who he wants them to be peacemakers and merciful and and all these things. Then he said, you're going to have influence like salt and light. It's distinct. It has an impact. And then we got into the section of the Sermon on the Mount where he starts dealing with how he fulfilled the Old Testament law. He is the fulfillment. He didn't come to put it away. He came to fulfill it. And as the one who fulfills it, he is the one who interprets it and shows that the original intent was. So he started with murder. He says, y'all think you didn't go all Jason Bourne on somebody. You're good to go. But how's your heart? How are you treating people? That's the heart of the command. Not just don't murder. How do you talk about people? How do you treat people? Last week, you think you're just not having an affair. You're good to go. And as Peter unpacked, no, it's, it's far deeper than that. It's in the mind. It's in the heart. The same is true about marriage. They think they're good to go as long as they have their little deal. And Jesus is going to show them. Let's look at the intent. All right. So Matthew chapter five. Let me read our text. We're going to actually be in three different texts today. Okay, so we're going to be a little bit all over, but let's just start in the the one in Matthew 5. It says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Right? Now, we've seen the formula before. This is the third time. You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. The first two are in the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. So not commit adultery. Where does this one come from? Because the implication seems to be that they think that God is just fine with divorce as long as you got the lawyer. As long as you got the piece of paper. I mean, look, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate. That's what it says. So as long as you got the paper, as long as it's legal, then God must be for it. Right? But is that the intent of the law? I mean, where is this verse even written? Where does it say it? It says it was also said. So where does it say it? It says it in one passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So let's let's go there because I want to show you that the intent of that is not what they're taking at. So you can hold your finger here and turn to the book of Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the second giving of the law. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let me turn there. It's good to hear those papers turning. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is what it says, okay? This is what they're quoting and they're going to, right? When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Now, let's just stop right there, okay? He, he takes a wife and he finds some kind of indecency. It's a real interesting Hebrew phrase. It literally means the nakedness of a thing. It's only used one other place in the Old Testament, in chapter 23. It's used when God tells the people of Israel, look, when you got to go to the potty, number two, don't do it in a camp. Go outside the camp and take your shovel. Because if you do it inside the camp, it's an indecent thing. Same word, same phrase. So that's the only time we have it in the scripture. So we don't really have a definition. What is indecent? All right, what does it mean he finds something indecent in her? Most commentaries, and I, I would tend to agree with them, there's some sort of impropriety, some sort of immorality that takes place. Not adultery, because adultery was a, a stonable offense. So something less than adultery, the husband finds in his wife, and so what does he do? Because he finds indecency, it doesn't command it, but he says he does, and then he, he writes her a certificate of divorce. He puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house. But then there's more contingents, verse 2. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if he dies, he who took her to be his wife, then the former husband, the first guy who sent her away, 
may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So we have a very obscure law, right? It's if she does this, and if she does this, and then she marries this guy, and then he dies, and then she cannot go back to the first guy. That's the law, okay? Very obscure, and a lot of ifs, ands, and buts in there. Now, why is that even in the law for the, in the first place? That's the question, okay? Why does God put it in there? Here's why. Because in that culture, just like in ours, divorce was, was pervasive. And what was happening is these men, these Jewish men even, were sending their wives away. Right? Just, you know, I want a newer model. Whatever it is. Sending them away. And so because the Israelites are doing this, God puts in the law something to regulate this practice. All right? Because he's protecting someone. Who's he protecting? He's protecting the women. What happens when a woman is sent away? She can't go take nursing classes. There's no job for her. She has to do one of two things in that culture. She's got to either go beg or she's going to be in a life of prostitution. That's the only option she has. She can't go back to dad because dad's like, look, I pay. You're done. You're out. I got my own family. So these men are sending these Israelite women away and there is no option for them. So Moses regulates by the Holy Spirit this practice to limit it and to protect these women. And if there's kids, these kids as well. And it's, again, it's very obscure. This is not like, oh, the, you know, just whatever. And what had happened by Jesus's time is these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they take this verse, this obscure passage, and they zoom in on that one word, indecent. And they start debating and have these big debates. What does indecent really mean? And you had this one rabbi, Rabbi Hillel. You can still read about it in the Mishnah. Go get online, get in the Mishnah. And he said indecent, and he was like the big pastor of the day. He said indecent was anything, anything he didn't like. If your wife's voice is too loud, get rid of her. She lousy cook, get rid of her, ladies. You know, I mean, he, that's what he says. And so all these people are following him. And what you have is God creates marriage as something good and holy and perfect. Man sins and, and it's flawed now. You have all these struggles. Now these men are abusing marriage. So God sets something in the law to regulate it. He's not endorsing it. He's not saying this is good. He's saying this is how I'm going to manage it because man is heart, heart is hard. And what do they do? They take that, which was meant to protect the women, and they abuse it even further. And now they're just sending them out for anything. She burns the toast. Boom. I don't like her pizza. Boom. She doesn't like sweet tea. Boom. She's out. All these things. And so you understand now why Jesus gets so hot with these Pharisees. They take those things which are meant to protect and be good. They abuse and they use it for their own sin. And they make it legal. I got a piece of paper. Look what I got. I'm legal. I'm good. I'm holy. I can do what I want. I can go marry who I want. I can go shack up with who I want. That's what they're doing. And so what Jesus does, and you can go back to Matthew 5, is he's bringing it now back to the intent. Is that what Moses really meant? I mean, just go do whatever? No. You say whoever divorces his wife, let him just give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, and it's emphatic, I, even I, Jesus, king of the world, maker of all things, I say to you what? That everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, of porneia is the Greek word. It kind of runs the gamut of all immorality, adultery, all those other things. Unless it's adultery, unless it's immorality, he makes her commit adultery. And notice the voice, the passive voice of the verb there. He actually makes her commit adultery. Why? Because now she's got to go out and get remarried. She's got to do, she's got to find a job. She, I mean, she can't find a job. She's got to go get remarried. So it's on the man who sends her out. And notice it's very male dominated. Why? Because women that day couldn't seek a divorce. So he's directing it to the men because they're the ones who are sending him out. Now, nowadays, you know, it could be either way. The guy leaves, the girl leaves, whatever it is. But Jesus says, unless there's been immorality, unless there's been adultery, and the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 we did a whole sermon on it. He says, and also in the case of abandonment, if the spouse leaves, let him go. So there are only two options biblically for a divorce is if someone has been immoral or there has been an abandonment. And that's it. Now, that doesn't mean if you're in an abusive relationship, someone's beating you. Oh, I just have to be a good Christian. I stay here. No, that's not what that means. You call the cops if that takes place. Let them deal with it. But that's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is Jesus says, look, this is a big deal. Unless there's been immorality, unless, Apostle Paul, there has been abandonment, you commit adultery. Or you make them. Or if you go and marry a divorced woman, you're committing adultery. And look, Jesus is very straightforward here. 
He has not minced words. He has told us what he thinks. He said, well, that's just one verse. It's in Matthew 19. It's in Luke chapter 16. It's in Mark chapter 10. Just in case we miss it. In case you only got one gospel, he puts it in a couple others. Right? And so what we want to do, what Jesus doesn't do in this, these two verses, he doesn't answer the question why. He doesn't deal with the why is that true. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sits down, starts teaching his disciples. But if you read the whole Sermon on the Mount, it takes, what, 12, 13 minutes. Okay, Jesus was not preaching a 12-minute sermon. Okay, that's not what happened. Matthew is giving us the highlights of the sermon. And I think the reason he doesn't deal with it, the why in this portion, is because he knows he's going to 12 chapters later. All right, so turn to Matthew chapter 19, which is really almost the exact same situation what's going on here. And this is where Jesus goes back to the intent. This is where he's going to say, okay, let's talk about this in a deeper level. All right, so Matthew 19. I said 12 chapters. I was a PE major, remember? 14 chapters later. All right. Sorry. Okay. Similar situation. Jesus is teaching lots of people. They're all around. And the Pharisees, the guys that don't like him in verse 3, came up to him and tested him. That's key. They want to trip him up. They want him to mess up, right? They're testing him by asking. They say this. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, he knows. They know his answer. They've heard him preaching for two and a half years now. They know exactly where he stands. But they're trying to trip him up. Why? Because if he says no... What are they going to say? Ah, ha, ha, ha. I got Deuteronomy 24. They got on a little card, like navigators. You know the navigators that carry the verses? They got their navigator card. Ha, ha, I got a verse. Deuteronomy 24, right here. Because if Jesus, if you disagree with Moses, then you're not a good guy because Moses is good. And if you can't agree with him, then you're not good. And not only that, there's this king named Herod who lives at that time who divorces his wife. And he goes and gets his brother's wife and marries her. And there's another preacher named John the Baptist who said, that's bad. And he killed him. Okay, so the Pharisees are trying to set Jesus up, right? They want him to get in trouble. They want the people to leave him. They don't like him. So they test him. Is it lawful? Can, can a man get divorced for any reason? Now, Jesus knows they're testing, and he does what he so often does. He doesn't answer the question. I love it. Okay, don't answer the question. He, he, instead of answering, he asks a question. Okay, he asks them a question. He says this. Have you not read, and you can underline that word read, have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Now, where would they have read that? Go to Genesis chapter 1. And it says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, pop quiz, okay? Who wrote Deuteronomy? Good. First service said God. And I was like, come on. I mean, (laughs) God's always the answer in church. Jesus, right? No, you're right. Moses answered. Yeah, God did inspire the scriptures. All right. So Moses wrote Deuteronomy. Who wrote Genesis? Moses, right? So what's Jesus saying? You want to talk Moses? Let's talk Moses. All right, let's go back and see what Moses actually said. I know you got your verse, your little verse pack, Deuteronomy 24. Let's see what else Moses said. Who, did you not read Genesis 1, male and female? Okay, you remember the story? God creates every, ma- every creature, living creature on the earth on day six, including man. But everyone else has got a partner. Mr. and Mrs. Owl, Mr. and Mrs. Dinosaur. Mr. and Mrs. Froggy, everyone's happy except who? Adam. There was no helper suitable for Adam. And so God causes him to fall asleep. He takes a rib out of his side. He makes the woman and he wakes up and God brings the woman to the man. And he says, wow, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's like me, but she's not like me. She shall be called Isha, Hebrew, woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man, right? And then what's the next verse? What does Moses say? Jesus quotes it right here in verse 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Wait a minute. Do Adam and Eve have father and mother? No. So who's that written for? Us. A man shall leave his father and mother. He leaves his family. He cleaves. He holds fast to his wife. And what happens? And they shall become one flesh. Different families, now one family. There's a change, right? So they become, become is a change. There is something new. There is one flesh. And in case they missed it, what does Jesus say again in verse 6? So they are no longer two, but what? One flesh. Not two people into one people. Two people into one flesh. Flesh. They still 
are distinct. She's still feminine and woman. He is still masculine and man. But now they reflect the glory of God in a completely different way as a couple. And there's a spiritual connection there that is far deeper than just physical, a change of a last name, a guy in a collar signing a piece of paper. There is a deep, intimate, spiritual connection now where two have become one. One. And Jesus highlights it two times. One. One. There is diversity, male and female. There is unity, one flesh. Now follow Jesus' line of thinking now. Let's, let's put our biblical thinking caps on. Jesus is asked, is divorce okay for any reason? He doesn't answer the question. He says, what did they, what happened in the beginning? How, how did, what was the purpose? What was the intent? The intent was two to one. The intent was diversity to unity. Why is that the case? Because marriage from the beginning has been meant to broadcast something, to declare something, to show something. What? Or better who? God. Marriage is about who? It's about God, who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Three distinct persons, one complete God. Not part this, part three distinct, but yet one. There is unity and then there's diversity. And marriage from the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, was created not for you. It was created for God to proclaim him, to broadcast the Trinity. Here, I got one point in the sermon for you today. I'm a bad preacher. One, I'm not a Baptist today. I'm an Anglican today. I got one, one point. And here's the point of the sermon, that marriage is not about you. It is about God. Marriage is not about you. It is about God. It is about broadcasting him. And Paul takes this to a completely new level. And he quotes the exact same verse from, from, from Genesis 2. The exact same verse Jesus says, a man shall leave his father and mother. He quotes it, man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, the two shall become one. And then he adds this at the end. He says, this mystery is profound. And I say that it's related to Jesus and his church. See, marriage is not only about broadcasting the Trinity. It's about broadcasting Jesus' relationship to the church, where Jesus, the head, dies, gives himself, purifies, nourishes, cherishes the bride. The bride lovingly comes under her husband, loving him. And it's just this beautiful picture of oneness and intimacy and unconditional love. That's what marriage is supposed to be about, about the Trinity, about Jesus and his church. And now let me ask you the question, will Jesus ever leave his church? No. Will the Trinity ever be split? Never. And there's another purpose of marriage. It's not even in this text. Okay? But just as a, a third purpose of marriage is to what? Is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Is to have children, little disciples of followers of Jesus. We do really good here at CBC with that one. All right? We have been fruitful and multiplied. All right? Okay? So we, we're obedient in that one. But what about the first two? Where are we on the oneness? Where are we on the unconditional love, right? And, and again, you see why Jesus goes back to the intent. He doesn't just say, it's bad, don't do it. He says, what is marriage about? It is about me. It's about me. It's about me and my church. It's about raising little ones. And what happens? What happens to oneness when there's a divorce? Shreds it. What happens to unconditional love? Blows it up. What happens to the family? So, I mean, you could, I could have people come up and, and share testimony after testimony of you are a child and this or you're, we could do it all that. What does it do to the family? It, just, it destroys it. Great struggle. And so Jesus goes back to the intent. And there needs to be a change of thinking amongst God's people about what is marriage really about. And, and you need to understand this. Marriage is not about your happiness. Now, some of you are like, well, that makes a lot of sense now. Well, you should have told me this before, right? Now, listen to me. Marriage is not, the ultimate highest goal of your marriage is not your happiness. It is your holiness. It is oneness. That's what marriage is about. And if you will pursue oneness in your marriage, then the result will be great joy and happiness. If you pursue happiness and happiness alone, you will destroy both. 
And so it's so all about what are you doing in your marriage? There needs to be a change of thinking. It cannot be this cavalier mindset anymore towards marriage because it's not about us. It is about Jesus. And so he concludes after saying it's about oneness, it's about one flesh. What does he say in verse 6 again? What therefore, and whenever you see therefore, what are you supposed to ask? What's the therefore, therefore? It relates back. Because of oneness, because of one flesh, because of family, because of Jesus and his church. What therefore God has joined together? Who? Come on. Who? God. Not the man in the collar. Not me. I'm a talking head. Not the judge. But you say, well, well, we weren't Christians when we got married. Or I was a Christian. He wasn't. doesn't matter. Who is the author of marriage? You're assuming that you have to be Christian to have a good marriage. Who said that? Regardless if you're a believer or not, you can still have a marriage that reflects oneness. Now, as a follower of Jesus, is that easier? Yeah, because you get the purpose. But that doesn't mean that marriage still doesn't reflect the glory of God in a specific way. Male, female, oneness. God brought together. You think, well, we did it all wrong. God brought together. Well, I'm in our, my third marriage. doesn't matter. God's will for you in your third, fourth, seventeenth marriage is for this to be it till death do you part, wherever you've been before here. God brought together. Let no man, and you are the man, you are no man, separate. That's what he says. That's, you say, that's, that's strong. Yeah. Yeah. And some of you are thinking, well, wait. You're thinking with the Pharisees. Same question they had. Then they said to him, well, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? We read the passage. Did you see anything about a command? I didn't read anything about a command, did you? I didn't even see the word. I saw if, if, if. I didn't see a command. But it, but it had become that in their day. It became, oh, if she's unfaithful, get rid of her. She burns a toast, get rid of her. That's good. You need to be happy. It's about you. Right? He said, Moses didn't command. All right? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, what? Key word, allowed. He allowed it because you weren't protecting your women. He allowed it because you guys weren't doing your jobs. But from the beginning, and it's emphatic in the text, from the beginning is right up front. From the beginning, it was not so. What was the intent? The only reason Deuteronomy 24 is there is because y'all, Bunch of knuckleheads, men not doing their jobs. That's why it's there. And the same now, again, in our culture, just as even. It's not just the men, it's the women too. Well, I'm not happy, I'm not content, I'm getting out, I'm going to go find something. It's because of that, that's why it was in there. But from the beginning, from the beginning, and then he says, and I say to you, he says the same thing he said back in chapter 5. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, there's your exception. Or then 1 Corinthians 7 adds on, except for abandonment, and marries another, commits adultery. He has not stuttered. He has not stuttered. And you think, well, that's so high of a standard. And it is. And the reason why the air is kind of thick right now, and you're like, man, I, this is my first week at this church. Great day in the morning, right? But the reason why it's so thick is because some of us came into the room today with a cavalier view of marriage. But you know what? It's okay if you're like, wow, that's high standard. Because you know who else thought that too? The disciples. Look what they say. The verse 10. The disciples said, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And old Peter's sitting there, I'm married. All the other disciples are like, it's such, it's hard, Jesus, that's high. And you think Jesus, oh, no, 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 it's okay. What does he say? Not everyone can receive this. Only those who it's given. There are eunuchs who have been from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. And Jesus is not saying, oh, marriage is all poor married folks. That's not what he's saying. Jesus created marriage. It is good. It is awesome. It is perfect. It is fulfilling. There's great joy and contentment there. He's not down on marriage. But what he's saying is, it's a serious thing. Why? Because it's about me. And I'm serious. Marriage is, is serious. And it should be taken that way. This cavalier, oh, I don't, I'm not happy. I'm out. That's, this is about me. And if it's about me, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Is it necessary for divorce sometimes? Yes, it is. Some cases of abandonment and some and immorality when there's gross, unrepentant immorality and it's just not and the person's just gone. Yes, it, but that's even in that case, some of y'all know, it still hurts. It's still destructive. It still destroys. It still, still tears two apart, right? And that's, that's, that's why Jesus says, look, it's about me. It's about me. And I don't want my subjects. Here, here, you got your one point about him. Here's your one application. It's not for my subjects who are following me. Because they're supposed to be 
They're salt. They're light. They're influencing. They're different. It's not for me. And again, that's not to say, oh, I messed up. Yes, we said from 11.14 on, this is what we're talking about. Right? Whatever you came in the door, from 11.14 on, we want to have a new attitude. We want to have a change. It's not about me. Wherever you're at, it's not about me. And again, we, I had... In this, when we had 30 people, I knew where everyone was at. And we were in the Johnny Harris. I was like, oh, 30 of them, 12 of them were McGinney. So we didn't have that, you know. <laughs> so so yeah, I knew all the fam- I don't know where you're at. I just don't know. Um, but I know we have people that just got engaged. I know we have people whose spouses just bolted. I know we have people on third marriages. I know we have marriages that are doing awesome. And I know we have marriages that are struggling. I know if you, there's some of you that have parents that were divorced and you're like, I never want to do it. I know, we have all of that. And I don't know where you're at. But I want to give some, some, some helpful thoughts. Because the main idea is marriage is not about you. It's about God. It's about oneness. Well, how can that take place in this church? How can we be salt and light? How can we not become another statistic? How can it be different here? Because I'm not, I mean, the culture, I'm not, I expect the culture to do what they do. They don't know Jesus. I, Jesus expects different from those who do. And so how can we, from 11.15 on today, how can we be different? Let me give you some practical thoughts that I hope will facilitate oneness in your marriage. And some of you, maybe you're not married and you're like, ah, but your kids may be, or, or your best friend's getting married. I don't know where you're at, but write some of these things down. Because there's no magic pill. I mean, I don't have the, like, the bottle of indulgence for marriage up in my office. And if you're a big giver, you know, you get this one. You know, there's no magic pill. There's no... Every single person in this room has conflict with their spouse. If they're married. Every single person. Some have more, some have less. But there's conflict. As long as there's breath and sin, there's conflict. So how do we work through those things? How do we have oneness? How do we have a marriage that, that brings God glory, that reflects the Trinity, that reflects Jesus in his church? Let me give you some thoughts. First thought is this. Divorce is an idea that grows. It grows over time. I have married enough couples now and counsel enough couples that not one of them has sat across from me when I do their premarital counseling and thought, you know, I'm not sure about him, but if it doesn't work out, I'll be okay. In 18 months, I'll give him 18 months to square away. I've never met one. I never met one that was like, you know what? He's my best option. If something else comes along, we'll, we'll see. Every single one of them looks at each other with loving googly eyes and they think that the other person is the best person to ever walk the face of the earth. He is the, he's not just average. He is the best. I want to spend the rest of my life with this person, right? I mean, they're holding hands. I'll separate the chairs. They're trying to reach each other. I mean, that's the way it is, you know? That's how it is. And that's good. And almost every single one of you was there. Well, what happens in 10 years with that person I couldn't live without? And now they're the, I, I can't stand anybody like them. I mean, they are, they become my worst enemy. What happens? It's an idea that grows over time. There is a, what does Jesus say? The reason for it is hardness of heart. There is a hardness of heart that takes place somewhere there. And so what our job is, as men and women, whether we're single, married, whatever, is to constantly be doing heart checks. Where is my heart? Am I letting my marriage just ride? Am I kind of just letting it coast? I'm just, you know, I told you I loved you seven years ago. If things change, I'll let you know. That kind of mentality. Is there intentionality in the marriage? Right? Am I cultivating it? Is there a sin that I'm engaged in that's going to bring conflict? Is there going to be crisis in my relationship? Whether it's immorality online or whether it's idolatry. I'm working 77 hours at work. Whether it's my kids are more important to me than my, than my marriage. What, whatever it is. Is there some kind of sin you're engaged in that will bring it into crisis? And, and some of you think, oh, it's not even on my radar. We don't even say it in our house. And you shouldn't. You shouldn't even mention it. But it's, it's never on anyone's radar. That's why you constantly have to check your heart. That's why the writer of Hebrews says you need to be encouraged as long as the day is still called today. So that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because it's a slow process. No one dies of a heart attack because they ate one pizza. They die of it because they ate 50 years of it. And it is worth it in the end. Right? It's 50 years of that. It's not just one. That's the idea with divorce. Right? And so if you find yourself saying or thinking things like, well, I don't have to love them. I've been loved unconditionally, but I don't have to love them. I don't have to forgive them. Not unless they come to me first. Not with no strings attached. Right? I don't have to forgive. 
I don't have to ask for forgiveness. I don't have to pursue them. We're happy. She's got her chair. I got my chair, her paper, my checking account, her checking account. We have our lives. We have our issues. I don't have to pursue that person anymore. I don't have to seek oneness. I don't have to put you first. I have my job. I don't have to put you first. I have my family. I have my kids. See, that you start thinking those ways, there's a hardness of heart that needs to be repented of. And the only way to, the only way to soften that heart is to have God soften it. And if, that, if that's where you're at, look, five years from now, these ideas will be there. It'll be bigger if you do not deal with them. Constantly checking your heart. Search your heart constantly. All of us. All of us. Another idea is recognize that marriages and people are constantly changing. You are not the same. You know, you hear, oh, she's not the same person I married. Yeah, that was 15 years ago. I mean, how many of us, thank goodness we're not all 22 years old. Nothing against y'all 22-year-olds. You'll get this in 10 years. But thank goodness we're not all where we were. I I realized this, and and I've known this, but I realized this this past weekend, and I was up doing a wedding of of one of our couples. And and for those of you who know the story, my wife only started dating me because I had a Jeep. Okay. I mean, she, I had a Jeep that was like, oh, the Jeep, you know? And so she, you know, I went along with the Jeep. So she had to kind of ride, you know, in the car, but see, I had this Jeep and, and, and back in the day, my wife was driving a little sports car. She was at college. She loved to ride a Jeep. We go to LA and we, you know, DC talk, Jesus freak. We're going down. Yeah, it was great. The wind in our hair. And, and I realized that things had changed officially. We went back to Greenville this week and my parents have a Jeep. All right. So I get the flannel shirt out. You know, I got Three kids illegally strapped in the back of the car. Okay. <laughs> the fourth one didn't come with us because we couldn't fit him. Um, and, I, and my wife gets in the Jeep, and it was a completely different thing. It was like, this is kind of hard to get up in. <laughs> and then it was kind of smells in here. It's loud. Well, and I'm like, DC Talk, jeans, summer of 90-something. Come on. This is reminiscing here. You know, when we used to do this thing, this was us. Right? What happened? 13 years. I'm different. I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't even work it. I, you know, I used to wave to all the Jeep people. People are blowing by. I don't, you know, I didn't even notice them. I'm like, what's wrong with me? I haven't done this in so long. Different people, four children, maturity. It's, and that's okay. What you need to understand is people change. You'll go, your marriage will go through at least four or five different marriages in your, in your life. You're going to have that newlywed marriage, which is clearly different than the first child marriage. And then there's the second. And if you're us, the fourth child and, and you add them and then they're teenagers. That's a completely different thing. And then they're empty nests and then your grandkids. And that's not to say if you have some kind of crisis or uh, people have to live with you, your parents. I mean, there's just differences. And that's OK. You need to be willing to change. That's the, that's the thing. Remember, what is marriage about? It's not about you. It's about God. It's about oneness. So what needs to take place for there to be oneness? I'll turn the radio down. I love Jesus freak, but I'm going to turn it down. Okay, because we're not 20 years old. There needs to be some giving and some changing in your life. That's the way it is. She's not the same person. She's not supposed to be. She's supposed to be of maturity. He's not the same guy. I hope not. And that's okay. Some of the reasons you got married for it, they're just different now. You may have married that, that guy because he was the sweetest, gentlest, most patient guy. And your dad was not that. And it was, oh, that was so great. And you married him. Well, 15 years later, you got three kids at home and he comes home from work. You don't want him to be patient, gentle, sweet guy. You want him to deal with his children at this point. And you want him to be firm. But he can't. He's a patient, loving guy. Right? Now, he needs to deal with that. But you need to understand he's different. Maybe it was because he's so funny and he's so lighthearted. 15 years in, the funny lightheartedness is not as funny as it was. Or maybe it's you married her because she was so good at just getting it done. And my mom did everything for me. And I needed someone like that. And 15 years into marriage, he's now a vice president. or He's worked his way up the ladder. Now he's actually good at doing things. And he comes home and he doesn't want get it done, girl, anymore. He wants relational. Sit on the couch and talk with me. Tell me how your day. But I got a list. I got to work. I got to do all these things. See, there's changes. And your job as a husband, as a wife, is to change. Right? And it's not just one. I'll have, he needs to change, not me. It's both because it's not about you. It's about oneness. What does it take for there to be oneness? Giving and taking, give, changing, leading, loving. Those are the things. All right? That's what God is called to do. And when people are like, well, she just needs to change. That's where the problem is. Because there's not a willingness to be one. And everyone's constantly changing. So understand that. Here's another thing. I think all great marriages... And, and I know in my life when there's not this, that there's more conflict than there should be. It's all great marriages have time. 
There's a, there's a purposefulness and a time spent, whether it's a walk at night, whether it's a purposeful on a date. Look, and, and I'm the worst at this. Guys, dates don't just happen. You show up at 730, hey, let's go on a date. But what about the kids? Well, the dog will get them. You know, let's just go, you know. We'll be fine. Let's leave them. You know, they're good. We don't need them anyway. They're going to be gone a couple of years, right? They don't just happen. They, there's a planning and there's a process. There is a great event happening in Charleston in about a month, Family Life Weekend to Remember Conference for some of you married couples. It'd be a great opportunity for you to jo- jump up a couple hundred bucks and go up to this conference and kind of just have some time. Some of them watch the kids, grandparents, uncles, and, and just get away. It'd be a great resource, Right? See, if you feed this relationship and you nurture it, Jesus nourishes the church, what happens? Good things happen. If you starve this, if you neglect it, what happens? It dies. Right? It dies. It's a priority. So priority is your job is not a priority. Your kids are priority, but they're not as priority as your marriage. That's the priority. Right? And so investing time in that and being intentional. Right? And that's what, that's what God calls us to do. Jesus meets the needs and he pursues the church. Another good thing, um, that all great, all, a thing that all good marriages have is there is sacrifice. There is a dying to self. If you're going to have a great marriage, you have to die to self. You have to die to self. Because what you're doing when you do that is who are you following? The Lord Jesus, who gives himself for his bride. You have to be willing to die. You know who does this? I've seen my wife in our 13 and a half years of marriage do this so well, you know, especially when there's children. I mean, she, I'm like, out like a light. What is she doing? She's waking up every couple hours. She's feeding. She's changing. She's feeding. She's changing. She's sacrificing herself, her health. She doesn't get to eat the full meal. She doesn't get the good night's sleep. Why? For someone else. That is a dying to self. That's what it is. That's what God calls men to die to self. Women giving up preferences, giving up being right, giving up winning the fight just so you can be right and you know you're right. But giving those things up, that's what's dying to self. Your, her preferences become mine. Her interests become mine, mine, hers. I can tell you, I am the least girly man guy you have ever met or one of them. I'm in the top 10. But I can tell you this, I've watched every Green, Anne of Green Gables. Ah, off, I like them. I'm, I'm even strong enough in my masculinity to admit it. I like them. All right, I've even watched the last one, the lousy one, the third one. I have watched Pride and Prejudice. And I'm not talking about the little hour and a half. I'm talking BBC, baby. Eight hours. I've seen it at least twice. And I, again, I like it. I know more about Jane Austen than most women. <laughs> My wife watches golf with me now. She likes the Phillies and the Eagles. Right? I, and, I, and I, you know, amen, right? You know, I mean. What's the point? Her interests become mine. Mine, hers. Constantly. Constantly changing. I didn't like golf two years ago. Now she, I mean, this is what we do. You give of yourself. You save up money, money, resources, time, sacrificing self for your spouse. That's what, that's what great marriages do. When it's, this is my money, that's your money. What is that? There's no oneness there. You're splitting it up already. Right? Oneness. Good marriages, they sacrifice, they die to self. Good marriages, there's lots of humility and repentance. Lots. I, I'm a child of the 80s. I loved happy days. And I love Fonzie. Fonzie could never say I'm sorry. He'd be like, and he never could get it out, right? That's not good marriages. There's too much blame being placed. Her fault, she does this. His fault, the kids did this. Her in-law, my in-law's fault. Too much blaming. There needs to be humility and repentance in marriage. I did this. This is my fault. Yes, there's some blame over there, but I'm, I'm just apologizing because I'm the one that did it. And again, the model is who? It's Jesus, who did nothing wrong, but took all the blame. Jesus was perfect and innocent, and he dies for sins that he never committed. That is the model. That's the model of marriage. Well, I'll, once she repents, I'll do No. It takes great humility to do that. I understand. It's not always easy to do that. That's fine. It wasn't easy to leave the glory of heaven, take on the carpenter's body and die for your sin. But he did it. That is the model. There's lots of humility and brokenness and crying out. And people, oh, just fix my marriage, God. Just fix my marriage. Marriages get fixed when people start repenting. And then God 
uses that brokenness and that humility and he starts to work. But there's got to be humility first because God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Good marriages, two more things, exist in community. All right? If, you're in, if your marriage is in trouble right now and there's issues, the tendency is to pull away because everyone else has a great marriage. I see them in church. No. There's conflict. There's struggles. Okay? We we're real good at hiding things sometimes. But there's always struggles. You have to get into a place where you're humble enough to admit, I need help. And we have a, a, full, we have a guy that does all our counseling. I'll meet with you. Some of our elders will put you in a place with a couple that will encourage you. Whatever it is. But don't sit there and hide in the corner until it's too late. And then you're like, oh, what happened? I should have came earlier. Go to people that you see have good marriages. Hang out with them. Ask them questions. You have fights. How do you handle it? You have children. How do you? And talk. That's what we do. Again, encourage one another as long as the day is still called the day. Why? So that you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you're dating, there is no reason you should be dating in isolation. There is no reason you should be on the couch at 11 o'clock at night with no one else around. That's dumb. You date in community. All right? And, and don't just hang out with single people. Single people think they know a lot and they don't. Okay? You think they know. So hang out with married people. Go to a married group, small group, not just the singles one. Go to an adult Bible fellowship with not just the young adults. I'm not trying to take people out of Virgil's class, you know. But go places where married couples are so that you can find out. Because if they're, if they're going to do their job, they're going to say, we did this, this, and this that was wrong, and you don't do that. But do these four things because these things were good. And you're going to learn. And then 10 years from now, you're going to say, we listened to this guy, and now he's 65. And look, he's got a legacy. His grandchildren, look at that. And, and they, we did that, and that was great. And now you need to do it too. And that's how the church grows, matures. Being inside a community and married in community. And finally, I think all great marriages have hope. All great marriages have hope. I don't know where you are, but I know this. I know that Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose again. And because he did, wherever you're at, there is hope. If he can reconcile the world to himself and he can make peace with his enemies, then he can make peace in your marriage. And he can make peace and reconcile that. And if it's too late for that marriage because that person's remarried, he can still bring peace to your life. And you are not on the shelf and God can use you. And if you're on your fourth marriage, you say, how is this possible? That can still picture the Godhead. That can still picture redemption. That can still be unconditional love. You can still raise godly children because of the gospel. Wherever we're at, from 1115 on, from now on, we need to be a place that has hope. Hope. Because of what Jesus has done. Not because of me. Not because of our counselor. But because of the gospel. Because of the greatness of our God and Savior who reconciled us to himself. Let me tell you a story. It's a true story. I won't use the names to protect the innocent right now. It took place a long time ago, though, in another country. But there's a man married to a woman, happily married. Things are great. Three kids. One day the woman leaves. Just leaves. And she's... From that time on, just basically spends time just shacking up different houses. From house to house to house, different men. And every time the husband, he finds out where his wife is living. And he goes and he secretly, he writes a check and says, this is for my wife. Don't tell her it's from me. Just, just meet her needs, please. She goes to another house, another affair. He goes to that house, writes a check. This is for my wife. Just provide for her, please. He keeps doing that. He keeps providing. He keeps providing. Until finally, one day, the wife, is, she's gone so far around. Now she's actually being sold. She's actually gone so low, she's being sold as a slave in that culture. And what they would do in that culture is they'd put the slaves up top. And if it was a woman, they would take the veil off their face. They would strip them down. And they would stand there. And they would just start bidding. And so the woman gets placed on stage. Everyone's starting bidding. Five shekels of silver. Do I have six? Six. Six over there. Six. Seven. Uh, back in the back. Ten. Ten. Do I hear eleven? Eleven. Fourteen. F- Fifteen shekels. And the crowd now. Ooh. There's a good debating going on. In the back. Fifteen and a, and a bushel of barley. Fifteen and three bushels of barley. Ooh. The crowd goes quiet. Do I hear fifteen and four? Going once. Going twice. Sold. To the man in the back, 15 shekels of silver, three bushels of barley. Congratulations. Come get your prize. Man walks up. 
puts a cloak around the woman, puts the veil back on her face, and walks into the anonymity of the crowd. The man was her husband who purchases his wife. He takes her home. He says to her, you're going to be faithful now because you're mine. You're mine. And he could do with her what he wanted in that culture. He could beat her. He could torture her. He's the owner. He paid for her. He says, you're going to be faithful. You are mine. But then what he tells her is amazing. He says, and I, I'll be faithful to you. I will be with you. And then what he does is he takes the children, three kids. Their names are, you're not my people. No mercy. God scatters. Those are the names of the kids. He says, now your name is my people. Now your name is mercy. Now your name is God sows. True story. Man's name was Hosea. The wife's name was Gomer. True story. Story about God and his people Israel who constantly were rebelling and he would provide for them and their harlotry and eventually he will bring them back. The story is a true story. It is about you and your Jesus who paid for you, who bought you, who was himself stripped naked and pierced to a cross for your sins. And now he says, you have been bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. And what my desire for us as a church from 1115 on is for that your marriage, then my marriage, our kids' marriage, our grandkids, wherever you are at, would be a reflection of God and a reflection of Jesus and his church. If God can reconcile that, then his church should be a place of reconciliation and redemption. That is what CBC wants to be. That is who we want to be. That is my prayer for us. And we can be it because Jesus died on a cross and rose again. Let's pray and worship. Stand with me. Father, you are so good and faithful. And I know there's a lot of hurting people here this morning. I I understand that. I pray that whatever the need is, that your spirit, the comfort of the parakletos would come alongside and do what, what, what is needed best. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe it's a, a softening of a heart. Maybe it's a restoration. I, I don't know what that is, Lord Jesus. Maybe it's just affirming that we're in a good place. Lord, that your spirit would move in our hearts right now and show us what we need to do. I just want to be a church that honors you through our marriages, through our lives, through every facet. And that's a hard thing sometimes, but Lord, you have given us the ability by your spirit. And so be glorified in our marriages that we would represent you, Father, Son, and Spirit in oneness. That Lord Jesus, that we would represent you in the church, unconditional love. And that we would raise our children to do the same, to be followers of the Lord Jesus. We'll give you the glory because it's in your name we do it and pray.